Life is a precarious thing. It is not certain, it is not secure, and it is dangerous. I say these things based on what the Bible and the author of the Bible, God, tells us about life. It describes life as a beautiful and yet broken vapor, a short window of time that we have, that we live with eternal consequences. The things that we do here and now actually matter, and not just for this life, but on for eternity. We learn in the Bible that we are born into a world that is, yes, in some ways stunning. It is beautiful, but it's also far from the way that it was and far from the way that it will be. We enter this world that is infected by sin and we ourselves are infected by sin. We are born selfish. We are born broken. We are born sinful. And we only have a few short years to to really decide our eternal future. Will we wallow in our broken state or will we cry out to God, our maker? As one author quite pointedly put it, they said, we live our lives in eternity's lobby, walking towards a door that will forever seal our destiny. So life is dangerous. And yet we like to try and pretend that it's not. We don't like to think about the dangers. Like those on the Titanic, we sail through life pretending that everything's okay while the band plays on. We move through life trying not to think of the eternal realities. The part of the Bible that we're going to look at today talks about some of the dangers of life. It talks about these dangers. It doesn't pretend about them. But it also talks about some encouragements. It doesn't just say, hey, guys, these are dangers. Don't do these things. It says, do do these things. And so it has this simultaneous combination of uh, dangers and encouragements. It's a little bit, in my mind, like a lighthouse. When you see a lighthouse, if you're sailing at night and you see a lighthouse, seeing that lighthouse is encouraging because you're like, there's land, there's my destination. But in another way, it's a little bit of a warning because you're like, okay, there's rocks, there's land nearby. I don't want to run aground. It's both of these things together. This text is both dangers and encouragements together. Rather than me just talking about it, let's look at it together. James chapter 1, I encourage you to to find it in a Bible and to read with me. We're going to be in James chapter 1 and we're going to be from verse 19. And as you open your Bible, what you'll find is from 19, there's three paragraphs. And in each of these, you find this blend of dangers and encouragements. It's helpful to know that these warnings and these encouragements are for Christians. If you go to verse 19, it says, Know this, my beloved brothers or my beloved brothers and sisters. It's talking about the family of faith. Christians, know these things. And so as we look at these things, we need to realize that, yes, it's written for Christians, but maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're exploring faith. Maybe you're in in primary school. Maybe you're in academy, and you've got questions about faith. You're trying to decide, what do I believe about life? What do I believe about eternity? And I want to encourage you to listen, because what this text actually does is it paints a picture of a realistic picture of Christianity. It will help show us some of the challenges and also some of the goals of the Christian life. So with that said, let's look at the first paragraph, verse 19 through 21. In this section of the text, God speaking through James encourages us at first to be quick to hear and slow to speak. We see that at the first part. So that starts with these encouragements, but then it very quickly talks about a danger, and that danger is anger. Verse 20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we've got encouragements, we've got danger. 
And then we're given another danger. That danger is filthiness or the wickedness of the world. This is immediately followed by an encouragement, which is that we are to receive meekly the word of God. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a moment. If you go on to the next paragraph, it's followed by more encouragements. It says, hey, be doers of the word. Don't just hear the word, act on it. And so it then follows it up by saying, hey, there is a danger that we would be just hearers, that we would be forgetful people who only hear God's word. We're then followed up with another encouragement, and that is to look into the perfect law of God and to persevere in that perfect law. If you go on to the final paragraph, you find more of these encouragements and these dangers. It says, hey, there's this danger of having an uncontrolled tongue. And that uncontrolled tongue actually comes from having a deceived heart. Those are dangers. And then it finally encourages us to move away from those things and to actually visit those in affliction, to be practical in our faith and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. And so through this passage, we see dangers and we see encouragements. We see don'ts and we see do's. If we were to back away from the text for a moment and kind of take in the whole segment, all nine verses, what would we see in these nine verses? What I believe we see is that a Christian is in constant danger of being pulled away from the things that they are encouraged to do that will bring blessing in their life. Namely, hearing from God, receiving from God, and acting for God. And so these are the three important words that we're going to be looking at in the next few minutes. We're going to look at hearing, receiving, and doing. When we hear God, when we are, we, we are faced in that moment whenever we hear God with a decision, we can take on, we can receive what God has said to us, or we can reject it. We can intentionally forget His words. Now, going through a decision process like that is no new thing. In fact, we find wrestlings with this type of decision all the way through history and all through, through the pages of the Bible. And we find it all the way back to the very first people in the Bible, the first humans, Adam and Eve. They had a decision in the garden. Do they believe God's word for them? Do they believe that it's true, his warning, his advice? Or should they listen to their own hearts? Should they listen to the deceiver, the serpent, and eat the fruit that they're told will bring blessing? Obviously, you know what happened and you know some of the consequences of that moment. Now, you may think, well, I'm not in the Garden of Eden and I haven't heard God audibly speak recently. Now, on that second thought, hearing God speak, I would challenge you a little bit on that because I believe that God is constantly speaking. When was the last time that you saw a beautiful scene, a beautiful natural scene in front of you? Maybe it was a sunset. Maybe it was an epic landscape. In that moment, God was speaking to you. Acts 17 tells us that God speaks through his creation. In that moment, God was saying something like this to you. He was saying, I'm here. I'm real. I made you. Will you acknowledge me? Will you worship me? And so did you hear him in that moment? Did you acknowledge him or did you just look at that scene and think, wow, that's kind of cool and just move on without acknowledging God? You see, that's just one way that God speaks. 
He also speaks through other ways. He, he speaks through situations. He speaks through people. He speaks through his word, the Bible. He speaks through his Holy Spirit. God is constantly speaking. And he speaks not only to be heard, he speaks to be received. Receiving is more than just hearing. Receiving means taking something on board. Sadly, my wife may be a good example for this because she knows that sometimes when she speaks, I hear her, but I don't really hear her. I don't receive what she's saying. It kind of just floats through my brains. Other times I'm a good listener and I do hear. You see, receiving implies that we accept what we have heard. The danger is that we would hear and not respond, that we would hear and be unchanged. In verse 23 and 24 of this chapter, it talks about this and it describes when that happens like as silly as when somebody looks in a mirror and then walks away and forgets what they look like. If you go to the message paraphrase, which is just a a different translation of the Bible, a paraphrase of the Bible, it talks about it in this way. It talks about going in one ear and out the other, that that's what it's like to hear and to not receive. Verse 21 in in, in this text tells us how we receive God's word. And so I want to invite you to look at it with me. Verse 21 says this, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Okay, so get rid of sin. But then it goes on and says, And receive with what? Meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The way to receive God's word is with meekness. Humility. That's what it means. Maybe that's a word you're more familiar with. Humility. The problem is that we are all born with this sin and this sin makes us arrogant. It makes us like our ancestors where we question God. We question his plan. We question his power. We question his wisdom. We question even his existence. To receive his word takes something that goes against that sin nature. Humility. In the Old Testament, there's a story in 2 Kings chapter 5 about a Syrian commander who has leprosy, this skin disease. His name's Naaman. And he's this big and important guy, and he comes with all his pomp into Israel to, sh- to seek a healing. He's heard that there's a God, that there's a prophet there who may be able to heal him. And God actually does speak. He speaks through Elisha the prophet to him. And he instructs him to go and to wash in the river Jordan. Now, initially, when God, sorry, when Naaman hears God's word, he's offended. He's expecting some sort of worthy challenge, some sort of worthy sacrifice, where he has to go and do this incredible thing for God or has to really sacrifice of himself. But to go and wash in the Jordan? He says in his reaction, you know, aren't there rivers in Damascus where I can bathe, where I came from? Eventually, He humbles himself to the word of God and he receives what God has said to him. And as he he takes on board and he follows through with the action that God requires of him, he doesn't just experience physical healing. He experiences spiritual healing. He is forever changed. He is a God follower. When we humble ourselves and we receive God's word, we like Naaman are transformed. And this transformation is proved then by the way that we live. In some ways, God's word is a little bit like a seed. When we hear it, it's like this seed. And and when we receive it, it's like that seed gets planted and it starts to grow. And eventually, what does a plant do once it's, it's grown? It starts to produce fruit. 
The word of God that is heard and believed will always produce good fruit. It always results in action. It always results in doing. That's kind of the word that's used to describe what we are to do as we hear and we receive God's word in our lives. Look at verse 22 with me. It says there at the start of it, but be doers of the word. If you go on and read verse 25, it says this, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets, that's what we don't want to do, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The encouragement is to be a doer who acts. But what does this doing that we're talking about actually look like in a practical sense? Well, thankfully, if we go further on into verse 27, it describes us this for us. It says in verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is, is this, as in, listen to this, this is what the doing looks like, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True, pure religion. By the way, when it says religion, it's talking about worship. True worship has two very practical elements to it that are described here. The first is benevolence. That's how I would sum it up. Benevolence, that means acting in kindness. It talks there about visiting orphans and widows. And so it says that, that we are to do that, to visit orphans and widow, widows. And although it certainly means, yes, look after orphans and widows, they're often mentioned in the Bible, it means, I believe, more than just that. It links directly across to Jesus' conversation when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said two things. The second thing that he said, it is to love your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Every human being. That's how Jesus described it. Every human is made in the image of God and they are your neighbor. And so we hear and receive God's word and it and it comes into our life and it's meant to produce an action and that action is the proof of that change and that proof is that we start to care. We start to empathize. We start to be generous. We start to be selfless. All of that is wrapped up in this thought of loving your neighbor. And so I ask you today, do those words describe you? Do they describe me? Are we benevolent? The other action that is encouraged is holiness. It says here in the text to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, earlier on in verse 21, the encouragement was to put away all rampant wickedness. It doesn't just say wickedness, rampant wickedness. And we need to remember, this is a message to Christians. You see, a Christian is called to walk a difficult path. We are to live in this world and we are to selflessly, like we just talked about, love this world, to serve this created world. And yet... We are not to be stained by it, by the rampant wickedness. Again, this has links across to what Jesus said in his great command. The first thing that he said before love your neighbor was love the Lord your God with all your heart. When it says be unstained by the world, it's talking about holiness. It's loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. Personal holiness is not a popular subject in the church today. Why is that? 
or many of us, and I say us, I include myself in this indictment, are too friendly with worldly sin. I want to ask you, do the things that we watch honor God? Do the things that we look at and post on social media honor God? Is the way that we use our time honoring God? Is the way that we spend our money honoring God? I could keep the list going. It's a painful list. What I'm saying is this. There isn't an alternative here. The action that we are called to is, yes, benevolence, loving those around us, but it's also holiness. Worship, true religion, worship requires holiness. Now, I want to pause for a moment and clarify something here. It's really important for us to understand that order is key. If we get the order of the things that we're talking about here wrong, the call to benevolence and the call to holiness, which we've just talked about, will feel like a burden rather than the blessing that they're meant to be. You see, the order of faith that's described here in James and is described in the, throughout the Bible is that we hear God's word. We receive God's word and then we act on God's word. You see, we don't act a certain way to prove to God that we believe in him, to impress him somehow so that he will hear us and like us and and do as we bid him to do. You see, this is a common misconception and it's wrong to think that this is what God and faith is about. That's backwards. We don't act a way to impress God. And that's why it's so vitally important that we know what the message of God is. When we say receive the word of God, what are we talking about? Well, it's sometimes called the gospel or here in this particular passage, it's called the implanted word in verse 21. And it's called the law of liberty in verse 25. It's, it's, it's the message that's, that's so important for us to know and to believe. It's what makes us right with God. And that message is this, that you are sinful. And that no amount of trying to impress God will impress God. No amount of trying to love people or to try and love God will ultimately succeed. That you're sinful, but what makes you right with him? This is the message, is Jesus. Jesus offers you a free gift of grace that can make you right with God. And he came and he paid the price ahead of time for all of your sins. He knew in his sovereignty your life before you lived a day of it. And he knew every broken decision that you would make. And he paid for that on the cross. And his death that he died covers those sins. It cleanses you from those sins. And through him, your eternity can be a blessed one in his presence. When we hear that message, And in humility, remember that's key from the story of Naaman, receive it. That transforms us and it motivates us into action. Benevolence and holiness become a natural overflow of hearing and receiving that message. When we think about God and his grace for us and all that he's done for us, the natural response is to love God and to love people. That isn't a burden anymore. That's actually a blessing that we enjoy. 
James 1 is full of both encouragements and, yes, warnings of danger. And so I want to ask you, have some of the the dangers that we've even talked about today led you to, to shipwreck your life, to run aground in life? I want to ask you in humility, remember that that's key, to come. Let's all come to Jesus today. And may his may we receive his amazing grace and may that amazing grace move and motivate us into action. May it move us to kindness. May it move us to holiness. May it move us to be the doers of the word as God has called us to in this passage. May God give us grace in these things. Bless you.